Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to helping business owners prepare for exit so they can maximize value and exit on their terms. This is the Exit Insights podcast presented by Succession Plus. I'm Daryl Bates-Brownsword, and today I'm talking to Andrew Sherman. Andrew is a transactional lawyer, and I first came across Andrew when I found his TED Talk. It's a 2014 TED Talk, but it just captured my my interest and uh, my imagination, and I just had to reach out to Andrew and go, look, I'd, I'd like to take this conversation further. So welcome, Andrew. Thanks for joining me on the show. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad that uh, you saw the TED Talk. It, it it really was, uh, it's almost 10 years old now, but it was really designed to be timeless, as many TED Talks are. And um, um, we have a lot to talk about just from the TED Talk and how it relates to, you know, what's going on in today's economy. Absolutely. So, Andrew, look, why don't you, um, I guess, bridge the gap and, and give us a little bit of background about yourself and, and uh, I guess, set the scene because today, where I really want to pick your brains, uh, if, if I may, is about how businesses are valued and, and specifically linking to the change, I guess, from the what I call the, the goods economy through to the modern service economy. And a lot of value is tied up on, on things that aren't even in our balance sheets um, and which are just lumped into this goodwill or intangible assets. Yeah, we'll definitely unpack that a lot further over the course of the next 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, my background is pretty straightforward. Um, came out of law school in the in the early 80s. Uh, I had dropped out of college to be an entrepreneur, so I had a little taste of business growth and, and things from the entrepreneur's perspective. Um, have spent 35 years of my life practicing law as a transactional and business growth attorney. A very big chunk of my practice is in the M&A field. I've written several books on M&A and, you know, you saw my TED talk. I teach at the University of Maryland in the MBA program. I happen to be wearing my Maryland shirt today and uh, also at Georgetown Law School. Uh, thank you for the shameless book plug. Uh, I will always accept the shameless book plug. I will never do it myself, but I will look, I will be okay with the host doing it. Um, I always hate it when the guest just, you know, is basically trying to spend 30 minutes selling their book. I promise you that won't happen this time. Um, I, I should note that Brown Rudnick is a very uh, entrepreneurial, business-minded firm. Uh, we have offices across the United States and a very uh, prominent office in London where I will be next week for our uh, summer uh, summer party. So uh, I welcome all of your European listeners. Wonderful, Andrew. Look, I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, look, it is a shameless plug. And, and I think regular listeners will, will know that I'm a fan of intangible assets and, and helping business owners promote their, their valuation by, by working and, and promoting the intangible assets. So harvesting intangible assets by Andrew Sherman. Uh, uh, and and, and Daryl, you know, if you look at the theme and mission of your show and uh, your consultancy practice, I mean, if you look at everything that you've done, not to turn the tables on you and become the host, but you know, this is among the more important subjects you've probably ever encountered, because if it really is about the seller selling on their own terms and maximizing their value, then one of our themes today is understanding, you know, taking inventory of your assets and most importantly, taking inventory of your assets from the eyes of the buyer. Right. I mean, you know, I could have a beautiful desk that was made in Africa that's worth twenty five thousand dollars. And the desk means something to me because it was my first safari and all that. But 
if that desk means nothing to you as a buyer, the desk is worth a dollar, you know, and they're not going to pay more than a dollar. But if you've got software and systems and processes and channels and relationships and best practices and know-how and show-how and other things we'll be talking about, those are the assets most interested right now to buyers. And if you don't take inventory of those assets, some pretty bad things can happen. And we'll talk about those things through the course of the show. Yeah. So why don't we start with, I guess, a bit of history? Because um, look, I, I'm just a simple engineer is my background. So logic and, and, and sort of got into a business side of uh, valuing businesses later in my career after a stack of uh, years consulting. But you know, what I started to become aware of is, is in terms of valuing businesses, we, we, we had a look, you know, we, we evolved from the goods economy. And, and if you look at the goods economy, it was manufacturing and, and building things. And we, we needed a whole lot of tools and a whole lot of people on you know, hands on day using tools, physical, tangible tools and equipment to to make stuff. And we'd buy this stuff and and organizations needed to protect, um, you know, their 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 investment in this machinery because there's high capital cost in, in machinery and they need to protect their investment. So they'd create some IP and, and, and patents around that. So, you know, to me. Um, historical IP, I capture when I'm talking with clients to get the concept across, I call it KFC IP. Why? Because I'm not too bright and I just uh, simple it down. And, and KFC IP refers to the special, the secret formula that we had. Move forward to you know, post 2000, where, where a lot of our economy is, is now in the, you know, the services world. We've, we've evolved into uh, you know, services and, and very little um, um, businesses, you know, a much lower percentage of businesses in the Western world is, is manufacturing and, and product-based. And, and the IP has evolved to, I call it Subway IP. Why? Because it's Subway, you're just buying a salad sandwich or, or you know, some sort of uh, sandwich. It's just a sandwich. There's not a lot special about it. Subway franchise owner might get upset with me. But if you have a look at why people go to Subway, it's because they know what they're going to get. And it's all about building the process of building and preparing that, that, that salad roll for them down to the point where the server looks up halfway through the process. And I'm sure there's a sign behind the counter that says, look at the customer and smile at this point. And they look up and right. they get an absolute consistent experience of them built. You know, do you want let what meat? Do you want what, what protein? Then what, you know, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want lettuce? And then right down to you want dressing. And, and it's a consistent process and it's reliable. So there's your Subway IP, which is all about the process. And, I think and to your point, exactly, it's been, uh, well, first of all, Fred DeLuca was a friend and client of mine. May he rest in peace. So uh, you are forgiven for the Subway analogy. But, uh, you know, if you think of, you know, when you have real intellectual capital, is when your system is copied. I mean, yeah. Subway, arguably among the most successful uh, franchise systems in the United States, filled with this intangible capital that we'll be talking about, um, has been mimicked by Chipotle, which hasn't done half bad either. I mean, the line uh, process and allowing the customer to visualize the food as it's being made and influence the outcome you know, those things may not sound like valuable intellectual property, but how many people listening to this podcast wouldn't like to own Subway, which, by the way, is being sold by Fred's estate right now. And, and they're talking about eight to 10 billion in purchase price or more. Um, you know, Chipotle was one of the most successful spinoffs of McDonald's ever. 
Um, so these aren't assets to be taken lightly. These are assets to be taken very, very seriously. And, you know, smaller and mid-sized companies listening to today's podcast need to take a page out of that playbook. Um, I will bet all of my 401k retirement money that there is not a single listener who owns a business, not a single one that doesn't have unharvested, embedded intellectual capital in their company. I can't promise you how much it's worth. I can't promise you it's worth 10 billion, but I've never, ever, ever encountered a company that did not have some form of intangible assets. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And if you don't identify it, if you don't talk about it, if you don't bring it to the forefront, there's no way you're going to get any value from it. Because the bio- well, it's even worse than that. It's even worse than that. Imagine, Daryl, just hypothetical. Imagine, Daryl, that you have decided to sell your home, okay? And in the attic are a series of, of gold bars. But you don't know because you've never been in your attic, Right. And you prepare to sell your house and you sell the house and, and, and all of its contents. And uh, the buyer robustly goes up to the attic a week later and finds, you know, hundreds of gold bars. Uh, what do you think the chances are the buyer is going to call you and say, uh, Darrell, you forgot your gold bars up in the attic. Uh, I'm sure you want to come pick up your millions and millions of dollars of gold bars. You know, you if you were foolish enough not to explore the contents of your attic, then no buyer that I know of is either under any ethical, moral, or legal obligation to call you weeks later and say, I, I have the gold bars. In fact, they may not even be yours. They might be the previous seller that also didn't know that there were gold bars treasure up there. So, you know, that's the concept to selling a business. Imagine your business has these pockets of intangible value hidden in places that you don't go very often, like your attic or your basement. I mean, go with the business metaphor. They could be your accounting department, your inventory, your your operations, uh, you know, whatever it may be. And, you know, if you don't identify those assets, and that's the real reason the buyer buy, is buying your company and, and pays a low price for it, because they see things that you don't see for yourself, it's only your fault. And that's really the strategic essence of this podcast series, as I understand it from Daryl, is to make sure that no seller, no seller leaves money on the table for things that they themselves have contributed in building. And I, I, I can't more succinctly summarize it than that, if you agree, Daryl. That's, that's it in a nutshell. And, you know, so many business owners, I think they they've they take for granted. They've been doing it. Uh, it, it becomes their day job. They they forget how much time they invested in getting the the process, the brand, the whatever it is to where it is. It just becomes their norm. And when something is our norm and our everyday, we we underestimate how valuable it is to others because it's not their normal. As soon well, as they see it, they go, "Wow!" It's two things. They take it for granted. Uh, three things really. They're they're skeptical about the concept, and and third. They become jaded. They become jaded in their own businesses. I remember in Philadelphia once giving a speech to a group and a guy stands up and he says, you're full of blank, blank, blank. It was Philadelphia. So you can only imagine what the blanks were. 
uh, even though I was born and raised there. Uh, and, and he says, you know, I own a landscaping business. We cut lawns. What, what kind of intangible assets could we possibly have? I said, okay, you, you, you forced my hand. Let's go through the checklist. I said, do you have customer relationships? Yeah, we've got those. I said, do you have, you know, a couple of different pricing plans for customers to consider? Yeah, we've got those. I said, do you have, you know, routing strategies, you know, do you know that Daryl's grass is growing at a faster rate because he's in more sun and other customers are in shade and it's growing slower? And he said, oh, yeah, we've got that all figured out in the database. I said, do you have landscaping preferences in that database? Oh, yeah, Daryl likes his extra short, so we have him on a different cycle. Um, I said, do you have crew processes as to how many people to send to a particular home or commercial facility? Oh, yeah, we've got that. And of course, I don't want to use up all of our time, but you know, we got to about 17 elements of intangible assets. And he finally sat himself down because he was threatening to leave and said, you know, you're right. I'm the one that needs to be taking inventory of my intangibles. And every single one of those were indicia of value. Every single one of those were things that a buyer would would want. And that's before we get to things like employee loyalty, employee engagement, you know, how happy are people and look at what's going on in our larger society. I mean, you have high, high, high levels of, of disengagement. You have tons of people working from home, which put a challenge on building corporate culture and governance and leadership and mentoring and coaching and, and succession planning. Um, you know, we're, we're not exactly in, a, in, a, in an era where you can afford uh, to not take your intangible assets seriously, particularly what you said at the beginning of the podcast, that we've shifted to an information-based economy. And if you need any more evidence of that than Daryl and I are already presenting to you, why don't you just take a look at what happened in the stock market last week? Look at the impact of AI and what it had on the prices of NVIDIA and Microsoft. I mean, it, last week was a week where if you were a CEO of a publicly held company and you just uttered the letters AI, I mean, all you had to do was say the two letters, your stock went up 20%, let alone if you were actually making products or services supporting AI. So, you know, there, there's a, it, it, we, we can't touch and feel, except in a very small number of industries, the assets that drive the values of our business. Yeah. So, Andrew, why don't we start with what is an intangible asset? How do you identify them in a business? If you're a business owner listening to this going, heck, these guys are making a lot of sense. I need to start taking stock. Maybe I've got some intangible assets that I've just totally uh, undervalued or underestimated or, or just walk by every day and don't see them as such. Well, uh, the list is quite long and we could go for a couple hours. And yes, there is a list or lists in the book, but it evolves every day. You know, if you're a services-oriented business and you've got 72.3% of your people coming into work every day and a competitor wants to buy you and they've got 41.3% of their people coming to work every day, they might be buying you just to figure out how to get more of their people to come to work. You know, I mean, it, it, the list evolves as market conditions evolve. AI might not have been on my list 10 years ago or even five years ago. But if I were making a new list, it would very much be there. But uh, just for a primer, a primer um, brands, processes, relationships, customer loyalty, employee loyalty, distribution channels, 
channel relationship loyalty, supplier, uh, supply chain um, processes, uh, best practices, channels, relationships. I mean, all of these, you know, trade secrets, uh, proprietary processes, you know, Daryl, you mentioned a couple of fast food examples. Fast food chains are actually a, a very good example of, of, a, of a business model rooted in intangible assets, brands, processes, systems, channels, relationships that have leveraged into some quite impressive companies. I mean, when I think about McDonald's, uh, I think about the Big Mac being made millions of times a day in 90 different countries and yet somehow you get a consistent taste profile. Only an engineer like yourself could appreciate how amazing of a feat that is every day, day in, day out, to make the same product millions of times over, mostly by teenage kids, and still get a consistently tasting product 99.99% of the time. I mean, that's an engineering feat of, of epic proportion. You know, if you really think about it philosophically. And I was one of those teenagers in 1980. That was my first job at uh, Macca's. You know, two exactly. Special sauce, you name it. So, um, right. You, you, you're literally um, rattling through the, the um, intangible assets. The reason I asked is just, a, I guess, as a sense check, we've got a tool that we use. We call it the seven levers. And it's all about the intangible assets. And, and it, the, and they're, they're kind of big headings because you were going into all of the, the next layers under it. And the first one is we go, let's have a look at your revenue. How does your revenue come in? Is, is it contract? Exactly. Then I go. And the, the, durability, the durability of that revenue, yeah. the predictability of the revenue. And remember, numbers follow. They don't lead. You know, revenue doesn't just come from the sky. Revenue comes from brands, processes, relationships, customer loyalty, that's where revenue comes from. I mean, if no one likes, if, if you have none of those other four things, you will have zero revenue. Yep. So, you know, a lot of times it's just looking at the intangibles in their order of priority uh, rather than looking at them as an afterthought. Yeah. So the order of priority we look at is we go, let's analyze the revenue. How, how can we make that revenue more predictable, more reliable, stronger, more profitable? Then we look at the people. You talked about people and culture and, and loyalty and how long the employees stay with us and do they work the whole career and do they come into the office? So people's the second lever we go as a to leverage the valuation. Then we look at process. Yeah, is it do is everything done the same way consistently, you know, systemized like McDonald's, like Subway? Do we have reliable process? Is it always and is it fine-tuned and improved? Then we start looking at product and IP. Do we do people come to us for a, because we have a, a, a methodology that we're known for, or a brand, or even a proprietary product? So we've now got this Subway IP. You know, and after product, we now talk about distribution and suppliers. How do we? Who takes our product to market? Do do we have exactly. to take the market, or does the market chase us? And then we'll go, okay, so now we've got all of that. What about our brand, our position? What are we known for? Is that also drawing people to us? Can Do we have a, a brand that we're known? And if we've got those six levers in place, the second one is do we have that plug-and-play business model that will just allow us to scale? And I know they're just well, and, simple headings, but we use them. To no, 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 but they're very, but they're very important. Um, one point of clarification around IP, because a lot of times um, – uh, listeners and business owners get confused. You don't have to have a lot of hardcore IP to have intangible assets. They're not the same. 
IP are four boxes, trademarks, patents, copyrights, trade secrets. There are ways for lawyers to organize what categories of things might be protected by the law. But, you know, you take something like corporate reputation. Corporate reputation, okay, arguably is a first cousin to, to their brand. Brand is related to trademarks. But you can have things that are proprietary to you without them independently qualifying as a trade secret or a patent or, or a trademark. So please think of this category of intangible assets as being much broader than just the four boxes of intellectual property law. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting, the intellectual property law, because we, when we have the conversations with our clients, you know, I don't have a legal um, background, but we talk about IP as in you have the intellectual product uh, property, and then we go, now, is this protectable? which is kind of the next layer of going. Exactly. It? Yeah. There's one one very key area that that we haven't touched on that you and I talked about in, in preparation for the podcast, and that's this historical notion of, of goodwill. I don't know if, if this would be a good time to jump into that. Absolutely. Um, th there's a company called Ocean Tomo. I recommend anyone interested in this area to read some of their reports. Uh, Ocean Tomo in the 1980s began looking at the ratios of tangible to intangible assets um, in the Fortune 500 and uh, I think a slightly broader group as well. And what they found was that back in the 80s, uh, when Daryl and I first began our careers, um, the ratio was as you would expect it, 85 to 90% in most industry verticals were tangible assets, inventory, equipment, so, you know, items of manufacture, companies would buy other companies for real estate and for hard assets that you could put your hands on. Um, we are now in a period by 2023 where that 85 to 90% ratio has completely flip-flopped. So in, in half a lifetime, I mean, basically in the time of our professional careers, we have completely seen a shift. That shift is going to continue to happen. It's not going to end. And there are some small startup companies that are coming right out of the gate at a 99 to 1 ratio of intangible to tangible. I mean, no one's interested in your desks and chairs. They're not even interested in your cell phones and laptops. These are commodities. You know, if you don't have intangible assets, uh, you're going to be left behind. And if we look at companies like Facebook and Google and Apple, you know, uh, the, uh, NVIDIA just hit a trillion dollar um, market cap. You know, uh, Apple's got, I think, a $2 trillion market cap. You say to yourself, okay, $2 trillion in market cap. What percentage of that are hard assets on their balance sheet? 5%? 10%? I mean, 10% would be what? $200 billion in hard assets? I mean, that's a lot of hard assets, even if you have the biggest server farms ever. So- we're at a, yeah, I mean, we're at a period where, you know, even some of the most successful companies on the planet barely have 10% of their market cap in, in uh, reflective intangible assets. So here we have this accounting problem now, because back in the 80s and 70s and 60s, this term goodwill was used as, as kind of a rounding error. And now it's 90, 95% of the market value of companies, but we still don't have the right terms to define these assets. And 
If we have time, Dara, I'd love to tell a funny story about this. I, uh, yeah. So I, I come out of law school uh, in the mid 80s and I'm working on this very small deal. It was actually uh, you'll appreciate this. Dara, it was a, it was a chimney sweep company uh, and they were old school chimney sweeps with trucks and equipment and chemicals and, uh, you know, mostly tangible assets. And the purchase price of the business was a whopping five hundred and five hundred thousand dollars. So um, I'm working on the documents as a young associate and I get in early that morning for the closing and I keep adding up the assets in Exhibit A to the asset purchase agreement and they keep adding up to only four hundred and ninety thousand dollars. And I start sweating profusely. And the partner that I was working for hadn't come in yet. And I'm, I'm like in my desk. I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, the deal's at 500000 but the assets only add up to four ninety. And I, I don't know what is going to happen. I, am I going to get fired? I keep checking my math over and over and over. So finally, I, he comes in. His name was Scott. And I said, Scott, we've got a crisis. I said that we're selling assets for 500000 The assets only add up to four ninety. This is a fraud. We can't commit fraud. You know, I'm like thinking like a first-year associate. He says, just write down $10,000 Goodwill. I said, Goodwill, like like Goodwill Industries, the charity? He said, no, there's this counting concept called Goodwill. You can use it as a rounding error to make 490 into 500. I said, yeah, but but it sounds, it sounds sketchy to me. You know, what is this thing called Goodwill? And he said, well, it's like your brand and your customer relationships. And, you know, this was a 1985 exposure to, to the concept of goodwill. And I thought it was like a defense to fraud. You know, look at how this concept has evolved in four decades and it's going to continue to evolve. But we do need better accounting standards and more, you know, more precise terms to describe these intangibles. We're, we're well past the point where goodwill can be a catch-all or a rounding error or be that last $10,000 in the sale of a chimney sweep company. Well, I, I know I wouldn't have got away with anything in my engineering exams if I had a rounding error of 90%. Right, exactly. I mean, I, but, but, but now, you know, if, if you really study some of the world's most successful companies, the rounding error is the, is the tangible assets. That's what's so crazy. I mean, I, I, I don't want to ever lose sight of this because, you know, it's been a very strong strategic guidepost of my career. And back to the gold bars example, I don't want to be the lawyer that ever works on a deal that left all those gold bars in the attic. You know, that's, I want to be the opposite. I want to, uh, you know, imagine how happy you'd be if I was your real estate agent and I did a thorough inspection of your house before the sale and I said, Daryl, before we sell this home, you might want to go up to your attic because there's millions of dollars of gold bars up there. And that's how I feel about this issue in the context of M&A, particularly for small and mid-sized companies, because let's face it, their inventory management systems are weak. Their inventory management systems of their intangible assets are even weaker. Yeah. And buyers can take advantage. And extending that metaphor somewhat, you, the, the real estate agent says, look, you go and check out your attic. You're going to hand him one of those gold bars, aren't you? You're going to say, thank yes. you. Here, here you go. Yes, 100%. And by the way, in this field of business, it's gold bars, it's collectible baseball cards, it's you know all kinds of valuable assets that you never took inventory of 
and the buyer is now going to take inventory uh, for you, but after closing. Um, and I've seen very few situations where a buyer says, well, you know, uh, there was a, this thing's a lot more valuable. Let's let's make an upward adjustment to the purchase price. That rarely to never happens. It's yeah. So we've we've got these intangible assets or we've got a sense that we might have some intangible assets. And and we're looking at, at what you're sharing with us and you're going, hey, look, 90 percent near enough of business valuation is in intangible assets. It's locked away. So intangible means you can't touch them, feel them, which means sometimes you can't see them. Therefore, they're invisible. So whose responsibility is it? And I, the answer is obvious to bring those intangible assets to the surface and make them visible and present them and show them to potential buyers. Well, two things. Number one, they're they're often invisible, as you say, but they're also often embedded. So they're embedded. You know, you have to unpeel the onion a few layers to get to them. So imagine an invisible onion. You finally figure out that it's an onion, but then you only opened up the first layer of the onion. And so you feel like you accomplished something because you found the onion, even though it was invisible, but you didn't really open it up. So take patents. Many patents have claims that are written properly and broadly enough that they have applications outside your core industry. But of course, you're a busy entrepreneur, so you're so busy just looking at making products within the patent claims that you have in your core business, you're not thinking about 10 other businesses that might license your technology in their industry verticals. Well, if you don't figure that out sometime prior to the sale and the patents convey, guess who's getting the benefit of that? The buyer. And you'll be pretty upset when you're down in Florida golfing and you find out that the buyer is engaged in active licensing of your patents and at 10 other verticals making millions and millions of dollars of high margin revenue streams. So I think the answer to your question to be succinct, Daryl, is number one, uh, it's your responsibility as the owner of the business. You owe a fiduciary obligation to your minority shareholders or investors, and you owe it to yourself and to your family to maximize value, which is the point of Daryl's podcast. The second is if you don't have those skill sets, you know, don't be penny wise and pound foolish. Hire some consultants and lawyers. Uh, I'm sure Daryl and I would be happy to help you unearth these assets, unpeel the assets, and to see the things uh, that that people can't see for themselves. I um, I don't want to get too personal or too metaphysical, but you know, I was born with a congenital cataract in my left eye. I have no vision from here over, and I'm very proud to make a career out of seeing things. Uh, for people that they don't see for themselves, because I myself am half blind. And uh, it's motivated everything that I do in my life. And uh, I get very excited to help companies unearth these assets, because it is an opportunity uh, to have vision uh, beyond ocular vision and, and you know, to, to really help unearth the assets. Now, I do want to say one very important thing. I also represent buyers. I mean, I'm not a seller only attorney. I'm an M&A lawyer, which means you can be on the buy side or the sell side. When I'm on the buy side, it's my job to find those uh, hidden onions. It's my job to look at the due diligence differently than the typical lawyer might and identify those intangible assets that can be post-closing drivers of value for our buyer clients. So, you know, basically trying to say, Daryl, if if you, the seller, don't 
line up these resources. Don't be uh, surprised if the buyer's got his or her lineup of resources. Yeah, so you're the one going snooping around in the roof and saying to your client, I don't think they're selling hose, but the the roof's loaded with gold. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, not, the, talk about uh, very happy clients. Imagine 30 to 60 days after closing when you can sit down with the client and say, now let's sort out here what we really bought. Let's sort out what we paid for it and what its value might be. And this happens a lot in uh, in in you know large to medium sized transactions. Companies end up with some assets that they really weren't planning on having, uh, but now they're taking full advantage of because that's the job of buyers. Yeah. So our job as as business owners as entrepreneurs is to identify and uncover. Um, all of the hidden or the, the not so hidden, the buried perhaps, uh, intangible assets in our business and see what they're worth through a buyer's lens and, and where they can potentially be valuable elsewhere. Um, and, and this came out, I remember, in, in some of my early business studies where we talked about the whole concept of best practice was having a look what's happening in other industries just as some of your internal processes so that you can see how a best-in-class process, system, what have you, may operate, and can you borrow from other industries and apply to your own? Uh, similar exactly. sort of thinking, I guess. Now, two, two quick footnotes. Footnote number one, once you take this inventory, you might carve out a few assets and keep them for yourselves as your next project. We had a client recently that sold uh, some tech services to the government. He also had this little innovation lab where he had developed some interesting body armor and other products. And, and he decided when he was thinking of selling his business to carve out the innovation lab because he wasn't sure what he had in there, but he knew that he didn't want to sell it. So that's one consideration. The second is that this question gets asked of me a lot. What if I've got some, uh, some intangible assets, but they really haven't been harvested yet? They haven't turned themselves into revenue yet. How does that get valued? And my answer is always the same you're probably not going to get 100%. No no buyer is going to say, oh, Daryl, you've got potentially gold bars, but they also might be fake or, you know, stolen or whatever. You know, they're not going to give you maximum value per gold bar. But what they will do is at least acknowledge the existence and then you negotiate accordingly. And that's where deferred considerations such as earnouts or royalties or uh, other contingent payments come up is to say, hey, we... The, the buyer might say, all right, we acknowledge the uh, existence of these intangibles. We're not going to pay you 100% market value for them because they've not been tested. But if we do roll them out, you'll get a royalty or an earnout or some type of deferred payment for them. So, you know, I don't want to create the thought that every seller has a gazillion dollars in, in embedded value. Uh, but if you don't take inventory, the buyer is certainly going to take inventory for you with no obligation to tell you what they found. Well, exactly. And and therefore, it's 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 up to us to to do that complete audit on our business. And and we really need a, a, an outside set of eyes to look at it through a fresh view because yeah, we're conditioned to it. We're, we're not seeing what's, what's um, valuable to someone else. So have a look, do that stock take of, of the way we run our business. And then if we've got time, if we're not looking to exit too quickly, we can then start to leverage that and use that and bring it to the front of our business so that it's more obvious and visible so that we can you know, 
start generating cash and revenue right. from it beforehand. And sometimes, sometimes without getting too hokey here, sometimes it's a mindset. You know, business owners are often entrepreneurs. They have mild to severe ADD. They're busy putting out fires all day long. And I make this point in the Harvesting Intangible Assets book. I know you've got a fire hose, but do you have an irrigation hose? You know, the irrigation hose spreads water much more softly and gently and grows plants for the long term. Every entrepreneur I've ever met is very adept with the fire hose, putting out fires every day. But do you have that long-term view? We have to think of ourselves as business owners, as stewards. Even if you're the 100% owner of the business, you're still a steward to your family, to your employees, to your suppliers. You know, if we if we embrace principles of stewardship, it would be, you know, a moral tragedy to not take inventory of the things that you've developed because not all of them necessarily belong to you. I mean, sometimes employees have contributed to these things. And if they're going to get some bonus upon sale of the business, they're going to want to see you maximize value. So, you know, the sooner boards of directors and business owners put themselves in a stewardship mindset, the more they start thinking, hey, you know, it, it is my job to maximize value, not just to line my pockets, uh, but to line my ecosystem's pockets. If you sell for a lot more than you thought, you can be that much better of a philanthropist after closing than you might have been beforehand. So there's a lot of ripple benefits to this beyond just, you know, a fatter wad of cash at closing, even though that's, of course, always a good thing. Uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. So, Andrew, where have we got to? We've got the, the we've got the valuation of the business. We've got a good running business. We're not aware of the intangible assets. They just invisibly help us run our business. They help us generate a profit, a good year in, year out profit, and we've got a profitable business. So without looking at the intangible assets, we'll get a standard sort of valuation. We've got a good profit and we might get, you know, I know it's a, not a great term, but a standard industry multiple applied to our profit for, for our valuation. If we start focusing on the intangible assets, chances are, and we bring them to the forefront and promote them and make them visible, then chances are we're going to have an impact on the M, the multiplier of our of our valuation. Is, is that a fair uh, conclusion? It's not only a fair conclusion, Daryl, it's, it's an elegant conclusion and it's an accurate conclusion. So I don't know what else I could ask for than elegance and accuracy. Well, the only thing I'm going to ask is, is to try and put you on a spot somewhat and, and sort of say, hey, in your experience, what sort of impact can we have on the M, the multiplier, if we if we really bring those intangible assets to the forefront? Well, I'll tell you, one of the great honors of my life, even though you don't usually hear this, uh, was testifying before Congress. Uh, and I was testifying on the topic of how if if U.S. entrepreneurs could do a better job unearthing and uncovering and, 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 you know, utilizing these assets, the impact it might have on the GDP, the impact it might have on employment and innovation. And I believe that to be the case in every organized uh, society in, in the planet. I mean, every country right now, even China is, and India are struggling with how to be more innovative, how to grow their GDPs, how to have people more engaged. I believe that you know innovation and creativity and the harvesting of innovation is one of the keys to employee engagement, to productivity, to GDP growth, uh, maybe even to world peace. So 
you know, I feel pretty strongly that there's that there's a lot, you know, the empowerment of people um, by leveraging these assets and creating income streams and profit centers and new opportunities is something that uh, can quite literally save the world. Brilliant. Andrew, I normally ask, um, you know, at the end of a conversation like this, what's the, the, the key thing that, that uh, you, you want listeners to take away from our conversation? I know we, we, we've, we've covered a lot of ground. We, we've both been pretty excited by the topic. But if there were just one thing that you could you know, go, hey, listeners, here's, here's the message I want you to hear. What would it be? Don't leave, don't leave gold bars in your attic before you sell your house. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I, I think, look, you know, uh, I, this stuff is fun. You know, it's, it's not hard work. It's enjoyable. It's fun to, you know, walk through your business with some advisors and see pockets of hidden value. It's fun for you. It's fun for your employees. You know, we need to bring a little bit more fun back into business. We're coming off the worst, worst pandemic in the history of mankind. People want to come to work and enjoy themselves and enjoy each other. And uh, I would say that, you know, don't look at harvesting intangible assets as just a quantitative way to increase value. Think of it as a qualitative way uh, to increase culture and engagement uh, and, and even better governance. So, um, you know, I think this topic does have a, a, a ripple effect into far greater areas of just maximizing business value. That's a far better summary that I had lined up. So, Andrew, thank you for sharing your exit insights with us today. I've really enjoyed having you on the show. Well, I'm always happy to have a part two. And uh, look, we did our job today. If even one listener uh, moves the needle, if even one listener thinks about their business differently. And it's been an absolute pleasure to be on the show.